Hi there, this is Kate. And I'm Dominic. And we are your hosts of Shitting Bricks, the podcast. Every week we'll bring you an episode of What Makes People Shit Bricks. Is it a fear of death? Deep water? Running out of wine? Cannibalism? We take a warp look at these topics using examples from history that are the epitome of some scary shit. You can find us on all the regular podcast streaming services like Apple, Spotify and Google. For exclusive content including behind the scenes nuggets, links to weekly topics and maybe even merch in the future, head to Shitting Bricks Podcast on Instagram and YouTube. But for now, drop your dax, pop a squat and let's get into it. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. my friends and welcome to the nightcap nebula podcast where nothing is taboo or wicked and the topics are always eerie and intriguing how well do you know your surroundings i mean really know them i'm willing to bet that most of you haven't made it past your own hometowns for a majority of reasons too timid too far from home introverted or maybe you just like your comfort zone those of you that have traveled far beyond your own boundaries like yours truly Understand that with venturing out into the territories, carries with it certain risks, such as, oh I don't know, vanishing without a trace comes to mind. Or worse. Of course, these instances only happen every so often, and is no real cause for concern, right? Wrong. It happens nearly every day. Ask the thousands of parents of missing children on milk cartons. Are you a bit anxious yet? Maybe unnerved? Good, because these cases are extremely spooky. This will be a two-parter, with the first segment showcasing poor souls that seemingly evaporated into thin air, and part two showcasing unsolved deaths and murders. Hunker down with a soft blanket, or your favorite object, or pet, and get ready to explore the top ten mystifying disappearances and malicious demises. War can be hell for everyone involved, and lots of mistakes and tragedies surround the skirmishes and battles that make it up. If you thought everything bad happened during a conflict, take a page from Flight 19 and think again. At 1410 hours on December 5th, 1945, a group of five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers took off from the U.S. Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, Florida for a routine overwater navigational training flight. The flight leader in charge of the unit, dubbed Flight 19, was U.S. Navy Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, who had amassed some 2,500 flying hours in addition to the completion of a combat tour in the Pacific Theater during World War II. 
Taylor and his crew of 13 airmen, some trainee pilots, were to execute navigation problem number one, described by the Naval History and Heritage Command as the following. 1. Depart 26 degrees, 3 minutes north and 80 degrees, 7 minutes west, and fly 91 degrees, distance 56 miles, to Hen and Chicken Shoals, to conduct low-level bombing after bombing continue on course 91 degrees for 67 miles. 2. Fly course 346 degrees, distance 73 miles, and 3. Fly course 241 degrees, distance of 120 miles, then returning to U.S. Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The weather in the area used for the training flight appeared fairly standard except for a few scattered showers. Visibility and wind speeds were considered to be normal, and Taylor and his crew made it easily to Hen and Chicken Shoals, where bombs were dropped according to plan, sometime around 1430 hours. At 1500 hours, a recording shows that one of the student pilots in the flight requested and was permitted to drop the plane's last bomb. Flight 19 turned and began to make its way toward the second leg of its exercise, and things took a strange turn. A radio message was intercepted from the flight at around 1600 hours, recording a conversation likely between Taylor and the pilot of one of the other planes. On the recording, one of the student pilots was asked by a crewman for a compass reading, to which the pilot replied, I don't know where we are. We must have gotten lost after the last turn. On the same recording, Lieutenant Taylor can be heard saying, Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Soon after, one of the planes in the flight called in to the NAS Fort Lauderdale to report that they were lost. Operators at the NAS tried many suggestions from switching radio frequencies to the search and rescue frequency, to imploring Taylor to turn on his IFF transmitter so that his location could be triangulated, but for whatever reason, these attempts were ignored by Taylor and the other pilots of Flight 19. In one of these recordings, a member of the flight can be heard exclaiming, Damn it! If we could just fly west, we could get home. Head west, damn it! As if under some spell, however, Taylor ordered the flight east. By this time, weather conditions in the area had deteriorated, and the sun had set. A handful of land-based radio stations were able to triangulate Flight 19's position as being somewhere north of the Bahamas and significantly off the coast of Florida. Despite this knowledge, the flight's location was not adequately reported to Naval Air Traffic Control personnel at NES Fort Lauderdale. At 1820 hours, the last message from Flight 19 was received. In this recording, Taylor was heard saying all planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. That last transmission would be the last thing anyone would hear from them, as all 14 airmen were never seen or heard from again. Eerily enough, they wouldn't be the only ones to vanish into thin air on the 5th of December, 1945. Knowing that the plane's fuel would have run out at 2,000 hours, a search and rescue effort was launched to locate the flight and its crew at around 1,800 hours that evening, just before the last message was received. Surface vessels, both military and merchant, were notified of the disappearance and two consolidated PBM Mariner flying boats were diverted from their original training flights to participate in square pattern searches in an attempt to locate any trace of Flight 19. One of these planes, PBM 5 Bureau Number 59225, took off from NAS Banana River in Brevard County, Florida at 1927 hours, carrying a crew of 13 rescue personnel. The plane called in a routine message a few minutes later, but disappeared off the radar entirely within around 20 minutes of takeoff. 
That night, a merchant ship off the coast of Fort Lauderdale reported seeing a burst of flame shortly before passing through an oil slick in the same vicinity the missing PBM had dropped off the radar. At daybreak the following day, the Navy launched an even larger rescue effort, now having to search for a total of six downed aircraft. The efforts lasted around five days, during which 300,000 square miles were combed for any sign of the planes or the men working aboard them, but not one body or piece of wreckage was ever found. To this day, there is no explanation of what happened to Flight 19, and some of the theories surrounding it are varied from plausible to confusing and downright insane. The most popular theory is, of course, that they became disoriented and was lost in the Bermuda Triangle's geo-disrupting grip. A more plausible theory is that a large fog bank may have disrupted their equipment and caused them to veer off course and crash. Crazy theories attribute the disappearance to enormous sea monsters, giant squids, or ocean flatulence, which is the ocean spewing out great quantities of trapped methane. Still, others claim that since it was during World War II, that it was a botched military government experiment that was successfully covered up and everyone involved is either dead now or is silenced early on. Conspiracies aside, the official account of the events of the 5th of December 1945 suggest that Lieutenant Taylor mistook his location, believing he was flying over the Florida Keys and the Gulf of Mexico. Armed with broken compasses, he was unable to determine his true location and eventually, Taylor and his airmen ran out of fuel, forcing them to down their planes and succumb to the elements. In a sudden bout of premonition before the flight, witnesses claimed that Lieutenant Taylor arrived to Flight 19's pre-exercise briefing late and they requested to be excused from the leading mission due to a bad feeling, but it is unclear why. The disappearance of one of the PBM-5 rescue planes has a more simpler and plausible explanation and that this particular plane model was prone to spontaneously exploding and is most likely the culprit of this incident. Whatever the case may be in both situations, however, not a single trace of them has been found and no further searches or charting has been done since. The phrase on a wing and a prayer come to mind with these poor lost souls. Soaring through the clouds one day to being swallowed up by an unforgiving unknown force, the next gives even myself the chills. Diplomats, presidents, dignitaries, prime ministers, and even dictators serve their people with kid gloves or an iron fist, but they are all similar in one way, the same organic matter as everyone else. They are not gods or anything special, and the same tragedies can befall them as the common peasant, so to speak, as is the case with the prime minister of Australia named Harold Holt. Holt became Australia's Prime Minister in January 1966 and has served as Minister under the country's longest-serving leader, Sir Robert Menzies. Menzies was a reportedly a stuffy Anglophile who was apparently the polar opposite of the younger Holt. His colleagues called him a breath of fresh air, stylish, progressive, and often referred to as Australia's first modern Prime Minister. Despite his relatively short time in office, Holt secured a series of significant achievements including switching Australia's currency to dollars and cents from the complicated pound and pence system. The other landmark of his time as a leader was the historic 1967 national referendum which paved the way for indigenous Australians to finally be counted among the country's population. Holt was also one of the first politicians to work to end the infamous White Australia policy which severely restricted immigration from non-European countries and reached out diplomatically to his Asian neighbours which at the time many Australians did not want to be viewed as part of their territory. It wasn't only Asia that Holt wanted Australia to move towards. 
As Prime Minister, he built a close personal friendship with U.S. President Johnson, famously declaring at the White House during a visit he was all the way with LBJ in the early stages of the Vietnam War, wanting more U.S. involvement in Vietnam in an attempt to unify everyone and dismantle the communist uprising. On a hot, humid Sunday before lunch on December 17, 1967, Holt decided to head to the local beach, close to the holiday house he owned at Port Sea on the Victorian coast. Although Holt wasn't a terribly strong swimmer, according to friends, he enjoyed spearfishing and diving. That day, however, may have been his undoing due to the circumstances as Holt wasn't in perfect health. he just had shoulder surgery and on Friday had been told by his doctor to take it easy after the operation. It was reported that on Saturday he played tennis and went into the water on Sunday, so his activities were very much against doctor's orders. Witnesses on the beach told police the tide was unusually high with a strong undercurrent that day, with some claiming it was the highest they'd ever seen. Holt began to swim farther from the beach into deeper waters, and it was reported that one of the last things Holt said to the group before he went out was, I know this beach like the back of my hand. One witness looked out and saw that Holt was becoming swamped with turbulence around him, and his movements became distressed. It was after these observations that he vanished and was never seen again. Australia was stunned at the news of Holt's apparent demise, especially after the assassination of JFK, with some citizens wondering how it got to that point with no security detail there to rescue him, when, in reality, he was there to get away from all of that. Amateur sleuths, police, and even the Australian army descended on the beach in an attempt to find the missing leader, or at the very least, his body. The search had involved up to 300 people at times, but was finally called off on January 5th. No trace of Holt was ever found. All that was left was his pile of clothes and spearfishing equipment sitting on the sand at Chivolt Beach. Holt's death or unknown fate became a part of Australian folklore and provoked furious debate. There was wild speculation in the media that Holt had committed suicide, distraught over an allegedly fractious marriage, or worn out from his job. Police in their 1968 report found this was highly unlikely. Other theories, and ones that make more sense given his position, had a more international flavor. Some claimed there was some sort of foreign power involved, that he'd been picked up by a Russian or Chinese mission and been whisked away against his will. A botched abduction or possible intergovernmental cover-up that led to Holt's removal has also been hotly debated, but there was never any real evidence to support these claims. There was even a widely scorned book titled The Prime Minister Was a Spy by British journalist Anthony Gray, which alleged Holt had been a Chinese spy and had been evacuated to a Chinese submarine from Chivolt Beach at the end of his mission. The most simple, straightforward explanation, however, is he just tragically drowned. But when it comes to individuals in power, that could be a hard pill to swallow. Holt's disappearance sent the governing Liberal Party into turmoil, resulting in a series of short-term, ineffective leaders and eventually the return of the Labour Party to government in 1972. The Liberal Party itself did not fully recover from Holt's death until 1975, when future Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser took control. For Australians, Holt's brief time in office was massively overshadowed by the mystery of his death, but Tom Frame, the director of the Public Leadership Research Group at the University of New South Wales Howard Library, wanted to bring this mostly forgotten leader into the limelight to showcase his life and get Australians that were not around at that time to see a chapter of their political history that was mostly discarded. As a result of Frame's efforts, Australians honoured him in a fashion that is both dark and amusing by naming a swimming pool after Holt. There are certain rules to follow if you intend on wading out into treacherous waters. Make sure you wait 30 minutes after you eat, check for sharks, and maybe avoid being stubborn after having surgery. Besides all that, remember folks, everything in Australia wants to kill you.
The Throne of the World, as it is referred to in the game Skyrim, was mostly modeled off of Mount Everest, which is the tallest point on Earth. Countless expeditions went to the top, and many never found their way back, or even made their way all the way up. There is, however, a big problem with who did it first, and it is hotly debated today with the mystery of George Mallory and Andrew Irvine. George Herbert Lay Mallory was a teacher and professional mountaineer. In 1924, almost three decades before Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary's attempt, he joined the expedition of General Charles Bruce in an attempt to summit Everest. The expedition was outfitted with the latest mountaineering equipment and technology, including supplemental oxygen, and was the second attempt by the British to summit Everest, with the first attempt being in 1922. Mallory had advised on the earlier expedition, and it was his proposed route of the mountain that was followed. The team of 12 mountain climbers and 60 local porters had reached the staging post in Tibet by late March, and the journey to the Everest base camp began. A month later, they had reached their camp where they rested and prepared for the attempt on the summit. The attempt proved disastrous, with multiple people dropping out due to altitude sickness, malaria, and some speculated that because they weren't blessed by the monks at the monastery near their first base camp, that they were not properly protected. There were three steps that needed around four base camps to navigate, one being a treacherous boulder pass, and the other being vertical sheer cliffs which had never been scaled. Despite their preparation and skill, their expedition failed, and the men were forced to turn back after getting so close, yet still so far. Determined and eager to conquer this mountain, on the 5th of June 1924, Mallory and Irvine, along with three others, set off for their fateful journey up the mountain in his third attempt on June 5th, 1924. The attempt was actually Mallory's second, and the expedition's third. Andrew Irvine was also a mountaineer, and was invited by Noel O'Dell, who was the leader of the expedition, and figured Irvine would be the Superman of the expedition based on his tenacity and youth. His intuition would prove correct, as during the expedition, Irvine made major and crucial innovations to the expedition's professionally designed oxygen sets, radically improving their functionality, lightness, and strength. He also maintained the expedition's cameras, camp beds, primus stoves, and many other devices. He was universally popular and respected by his older colleagues for his ingenuity, companionability, and unstinting hard work. There were two attempts to climb the last stretch of the journey. The first attempt in which Mallory was involved was successful in establishing a forward camp higher up the mountain to assist in the following climbs. The intention had been for there to be two such camps, but Mallory was unable to reach the site of the second and was forced to turn back. The second attempt by two climbers who passed Mallory as he was returning to his first climb was more successful, reaching within 300 meters of the summit before exhaustion and the increasing difficulty of the terrain forced them to turn back. Mallory and Irvine were carrying oxygen and were both aware that their ascent would likely be the final attempt to summit of the expedition. Mallory and Irvine became close friends, and he thought he was capable of making the climb. Unfortunately, he was wrong. The last note from Mallory, carried down the mountain by one of the porters from an advanced camp, talked of an attempt to summit on the 8th of June. This was the last anyone heard of the two climbers, with both seemingly perishing in their ascent. In the years that followed, much of the speculation around Mallory's attempt comes from a reported sighting of the two climbers made by Noah O'Dell. During a moment of clear weather, Odell claimed to have seen the two climbers in the far distance above him, at the base of the second step on the way to the summit. They were able to pass it and he felt that they had a clear run to the top. Many since have offered the opinion that Odell was incorrect or mistaken in this claim. Few believe that Mallory and Irvine could have climbed the second step as quickly as Odell said that they did, and, even today, such a fast ascent is impossible. When pressured by experts, Odell changed his story several times, making his story less and less credible. However, only Odell truly knows what he saw that day. 
Modern climbers have made assessments on the likelihood of Mallory successfully reaching the top based on his skill as a climber, the equipment available, and the time he had to summit. Regardless, they were not there, and they did not see what Odell saw. Based on what many knew about Mallory, it is possible that he knew that this was most likely his last attempt and was determined and committed to win the mountain for the British. Could it perhaps have been possible, through sheer will and fortitude, that they had made it? Highly unlikely given the circumstances, but not out of the realm of possibility. A century later, it is not known what happened on that fateful attempt, but in a bizarre twist, Mallory's body was found in 1999. The problem is the position of the remains and the various other items from that climb do not offer conclusive evidence either way to determine how he died. There is a glimmer of hope, however, that one day there might be answers and the biggest piece of evidence being in the form of Irvine's camera. If the pair had reached the summit, there would be surely photographic evidence of this astonishing achievement. Of course, neither Irvine's body nor the camera have ever been found, and as time goes on, the likelihood of the camera still being intact becomes more and more slim. Expeditions are still ongoing today, with the most recent in 2019 led by a man named Mark Sinot that investigated a crevice identified by Holzel as a potential resting place of Irvine, but discovered that it was merely an optical illusion. Sinot later reported on the possibility that the 1975 Chinese expedition may have found both Irvine and the camera, but were keeping it secret for unknown reasons. There have been no further expeditions planned, and chances are there won't be in the foreseeable future, and the two men have been officially declared dead. Adventure, discovery, and intrigue are three aspects of human nature that really make life worth living for some. But for others, it is a do-or-die reality that sometimes leads to the latter. Is it for fortune and glory, or merely to test the limits of oneself, pushing the boundaries of the human condition? You be the judge. In the jungle, a multitude of flora and fauna can cause your untimely, grisly, and excruciatingly slow journey into the next plane of being, wherever that may be. Every so often, however, neither plant nor beast is responsible, but an unseen force, as is the fate of one Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett. Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett was born in England in 1867 and was a famous British explorer whose legendary adventures captivated the world. An officer in the army and trained surveyor, Fawcett was one of the last famous territorial explorers which were men who ventured into blank spots on the map with little more than a machete and a compass. For years, he would survive without contact in the wilderness and befriend tribes who had never before seen a white man. His exploits in the Amazon-inspired books and Hollywood movies. It is even rumored that Indiana Jones is based on Fawcett minus the whip in silly slapstick dialogue. The Amazon wilderness is about the size of the continental United States, and during Fawcett's time, it remained one of the last unexplored regions on the map. In 1906, the Royal Geographical Society, a British organization that sponsors scientific expeditions, invited Fawcett to survey part of the frontier between Brazil and Bolivia, where he spent 18 months in the Mato Grosso area, and it was during this various expeditions that Fawcett became obsessed with the idea of lost civilizations in this area. While neck deep trekking across unknown terrain, Fawcett formulated theories of a city he called Z in 1912. His conviction was fueled in part by the rediscovery of the lost Inca city of Machu Picchu in 1911 that was hidden away in Peru's Andes Mountains. During his travels, Fawcett also heard rumors of a secret city buried in the jungles of Chile that was said to have streets paved in silver and roofs made of gold. Of Z itself, Fawcett had a specific idea of what the city looked like. 
In a letter to his son Brian, he felt that the city would look monolithic, more ancient and wondrous than any Egyptian discovery, and would possess strange light sources in the buildings. He based this on inscriptions he found through his travels in Brazil, but his romanticized ideals overshadowed reality. In 1920, Fawcett came across a document in the National Library of Rio de Janeiro called Manuscript 512. It was written by a Portuguese explorer in 1753 who claimed to have found a walled city deep in the Mato Grosso region of the Amazon rainforest reminiscent of ancient Greece. The torn and tattered writ had some key information and some translations talked about mountains so high that they scraped the ethereal region, and a black stone column that had a man with his left hand on his hip and the right arm extended, pointing his index finger towards the North Pole, surrounded by damaged obelisks as if struck by lightning. The manuscript also tells of a lost silver-laden city with multi-storied buildings, soaring stone arches, wide streets leading down towards a lake on which the explorer had seen two white Indians in a canoe. On the sides of the building were carved letters that seemed to resemble Greek or another early European alphabet. However, these claims were dismissed by archaeologists who believed the jungles could not hold such large cities, but Fawcett became convinced and borderline obsessed, and in 1921, he set out on his first expedition to find Z. Not long after departing, he and his team became demoralized by the hardships of the jungle, dangerous animals, and rampant diseases. The expedition was derailed, but Fawcett would depart in search of his fabled city later again that same year, this time from Bahia, Brazil, on a solo journey. He traveled this way for three months before returning in failure once again. In retrospect, maybe he should have walked away given what happened next. In April 1925, Fawcett attempted one last time to find Z, this time better equipped and better financed by newspapers and societies including the Royal Geographic Society and the Rockefellers. Joining him on the expedition was his good friend Raleigh Rimmel, his eldest son, 22-year-old Jack, and two Brazilian laborers. On May 29th, Fawcett and company reached the edge of unexplored territory, staring into jungles that no foreigner had ever seen. He explained in a letter home they were crossing the Upper Jingu, a southeastern tributary of the Amazon River, and had sent one of their Brazilian travel companions back, wishing to continue the journey alone. The team got as far as a place called Dead Horse Camp, where Fawcett sent back dispatches for five months, but after the fifth month they stopped. In his final dispatch, Fawcett sent a message to his wife Nina and proclaimed, We hope to get through this region in a few days. You need have no fear of any failure. It was to be the last anyone would ever hear from them again. One of the interesting unexplained discrepancies that arise in this letter is related to the coordinates he provides. He told his wife that the camp was Dead Horse Camp, the spot where my horse died in 1920, with latitudinal degrees, but he provided his location with different coordinates in a report to the North American newspaper Alliance. Some wonder if this change was meant to avoid detection by any rescue mission since Fawcett claimed they should have avoided if he'd disappeared since the danger would be high, if Fawcett had found the city and wanted to keep others from finding it too, or if he simply made a typographical error. The expedition had previously stated that they had planned to be gone for around a year, so when two years passed without any word, people began to worry. Numerous rescue missions seeking answers were mounted despite his wishes against this, and many of them suffered the same fate as Fawcett. For example, a journalist named Albert D. Winton went out in search of his team and was never seen again. In total, a staggering 13 expeditions would be launched in an effort to find answers and over 100 people would lose their lives or join the explorer's fate in being devoured by the jungle. Thousands of people applied to go on these expeditions and dozens set out looking for them over the next several decades. 
So what really happened to the Colonel? The official report from one of the rescue missions said that Fawcett had gone up the Kulin River and was killed for insulting an Indian chief, which is a story most believe today. However, Fawcett had always talked about maintaining positive relationships with the indigenous people of the area, and the way the natives remember him correlates with what he has written down. Another possibility is that he and his team died as a result of an accident such as a disease or drowning, and a third possibility is that they were caught off guard, robbed, and killed. This is plausible, as there had been a revolution in the area not long before and renegade soldiers have been hiding out in the jungle. On a number of occasions, within months of the expedition, travelers have been stopped, robbed, and in some cases murdered by the rebels. In 1952, the Kalapalo Indians of central Brazil reported that some explorers had passed through their region and were killed for speaking badly to the children of the village. The details of their account suggested that the victims were Percy Fawcett, Jack Fawcett, and Rally Rimmel. Following the report, Brazilian explorer Orlando Villaboas investigated the supposed area where they were killed and retrieved human bones, as well as personal objects including a knife, buttons, and small metal objects. The bones underwent numerous tests. However, without the DNA of members of Fawcett's family, who refused to provide samples for unknown reasons, no confirmation could be made regarding the identities of the remains. The bones currently reside in the Forensic Medicine Institute of the University of Sao Paulo. In 2005, David Grant reported in the New Yorker that he had visited the Kalapalo tribe and was told that the tribe had preserved Fawcett's story over time. Their people had allegedly warned Fawcett and his companions that they were in dangerous territory and may be killed by tribes living nearby. After five days, they no longer saw the evening campfire where Fawcett was staying and they searched for the campsite. When they couldn't find it, they presumed their fierce neighbors had killed the Englishmen. Besides rumors, initial tribe warfare leading to Fawcett's death and deadly misunderstandings, the case has gone cold. But there is a silver lining that the legendary city of Z may have been found just not in the spot that he thought. In Honduras, Brazil, Bolivia, and Guatemala, ancient religious sites have been uncovered in the surrounding jungles. In 2007, archaeologist Michael Heckenberger wrote about the discovery of a monumental ancient site called Kihikuhu, where Fawcett's team was searching. While it's a long shot at this point, there is a strong chance that Fawcett's death was not in vain, and that the said site may be the city he was searching for that may make his sacrifice one for the history books. If Harrison Ford wanted to play an accurate depiction of this man, Nazis would not be part of the narrative. Instead, he would venture into the unknown with the wealthiest backers behind him, and whatever happened next wouldn't end with the Ark of the Covenant or drinking from the Holy Grail. You're all aware that disappearances have been around since people have existed, but as of now, there is a very good chance that someone somewhere is being kidnapped, held captive, or just flat out fading away without a trace. So far I've discussed older cases, but let's take a look at a modern one that happened to a college student a little over a decade ago named Lauren Spearer. Spear was a 20-year-old IU sophomore studying fashion merchandising. She was from New York and lived in an apartment in the Smallwood Plaza, which is now called the Avenue on College in downtown Bloomington. She was the daughter of Rob and Charlene Spearer, who have helped keep the case of the public eye for the past 10 years with various social media posts and media appearances. 
Spear met her boyfriend Jesse Wolf and her friend Jay Rosenbaum years earlier at Camp Tawanda, a summer camp in the mountain town of Honesdale, Pennsylvania. It was there she also met various other future IU students who later became Spear's circle of friends when she enrolled in 2009. A very average girl with a pretty average college life it seemed, but things didn't end up that way for her or her family. On the evening of June 2nd, 2011, around 12.30 a.m., Spear went out drinking with some friends after watching the NBA playoffs. Her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf was not present, but they were texting back and forth before he went to sleep. She spent the next four hours moving among different parties with different combinations of four friends, Jay Rosenbaum, David Roan, Mike Beth, and Corey Rossman. According to witness accounts and surveillance video images, she left Rosenbaum's apartment at 5 North Town's home at 4.30 a.m. barefoot and intoxicated. This would be the last time she would ever be seen again. When Spear did not return, Wolf tried texting her, but to his surprise, received a response back not from her, but from an employee at the bar she had been to. It was at this point that Wolf reported his girlfriend missing. In August of 2011, police conducted a nine-day search of the Sycamore Rudge landfill in Pimento, south of Terre Haute, for clues, since trash from Bloomington is where trash is hauled to after a stop at a transfer station. The FBI and other local agencies aided in the search, but yielded next to nothing. Over the next few years, police would get dead-end leads, wild accusations, and interview those closest to her, but no one became a suspect. Her family posted flyers, talked to the news, and even hired private detectives, but everything ended in more questions than answers. It wasn't until April of 2015 that the Bloomington police were investigating a possible link between Spur and the murder of a recent IU student named Hannah Wilson, who went recently missing after visiting Kilroy's, which is the same bar that Spur visited the night she disappeared. Wilson was last seen getting into a taxi in front of the bar and driving away. Her body was discovered the next morning in Brown County. A drifter named Daniel Messel was arrested for the murder after his cell phone was found near her body. Private investigators hired by Spears' family said the crime was similar, but mostly coincidental and nothing was looked into further. A promising lead came in January of 2016 when Bloomington PD and federal agents acting on a tip searched the family property of Justin Wager. Cadaver dogs were deployed and came up with multiple hits. Anthropologists sifted and dug trying to find what the canines were detecting, but no body or even any bones were discovered, and the police made no comment on the botched investigation. Online sleuths and those interested in missing persons cases have a wide array of theories and speculations ranging from Spear being abducted by a motorcycle gang, to a drug overdose cover-up that was orchestrated by those closest to her in a conspiratorial pact ending with her body being dumped in the Ohio River. As sadistic as this might sound, there may be some truth to this as Spear suffered from a serious heart condition and combined with alcohol, cocaine would definitely speed up a fatal outcome and college students are not known for making rational decisions in crisis situations. As of today, no more leads have been explored. In 2017, Brown County Prosecutor Ted Adams affirms that the main suspect in the Hannah Wilson murder is also responsible for Spears' disappearance, but police have no evidence to go on and no further charges have been brought against him. The family still holds onto hope that she will either return home or be found so that she and they can all finally be at peace. If you have any information or would like to donate to their efforts, you can go to www. .findlauren.com Promising young people go missing in the world all the time, and in modern society, it seems even creepier, especially when everyone and everything is being watched. It makes you wonder if you're really safe, and the illusion of safety has crippled the senses, making sinister activities and heinous deeds even easier to achieve.
And so at last we come to the end of part one of the vast vacuum of who, what, where, when, and whys of those that will, sadly, probably never be found. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to catch part two on June 1st, where I cover the other end of the missing spectrum, unsolved murders. It will be a treat for your ears as well as your mind. Be sure to also follow me on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod. Also, be sure to comment, like, and share my other segments as it helps my exposure. I greatly appreciate all your ongoing support. It means the world to me. Until next time, be safe and stay curious. Thank you.